we're knocked it out right here. Let me get you a mic. It needs to be heard. <clears throat> Now, this is going to sound somewhat redundant, but it's intentional. The redundance is necessary. And so I asked Jeff if he would, uh, with maybe a little more clarity, uh, speak to you guys, to my brothers who are here at the church, who uh, we have something coming up in, in uh, February, February 10th. Jeff, would you speak to that? <clears throat> Yes, that's right. Thank you, brother. I told Jeff I would just sign up all the guys, and then you can just tell me if you can't make it. All right. And uh, to give you some encouragement, I will not be speaking. <laughs> you know, not to discourage you and thinking that you have to hear me one more time on a Saturday before Sunday. But we do have three guys that are going to be sharing, and they're going to be sharing their story. And uh, each of us have, has our own story, right? And uh, how, how God has done things in our lives as individuals. And these three gentlemen that are going to be sharing wants to share uh, with the group of men uh, to the benefit of the here as well as those who are sharing. So please, please sign up back there. Um, and there's a couple of things we're wanting to do for the guys uh, as just a token of love and appreciation uh, for you being a part of this. Uh, one of the things is there's a, we need your shirt size. So, uh, shocker, you're going to get a shirt, right? Okay. All right. But please sign up out there. Uh, we would really appreciate it, and I think it would be to your benefit. Amen? Amen. Okay. Second uh, Thessalonians. Remember this? We were in First Thessalonians. Remember that? We finished that, and I, and I said, hey, guys, man, we're going to kind of jump the rails 
uh, for Christmas, and then we're going to jump back on the rails uh, into 2 Thessalonians, right, as soon as uh, the holiday season was over. So that's where we're at, and we're transitioning into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, there's only three chapters in 2 Thessalonians, so um, we will not be in 2 Thessalonians for three months. Uh, hopefully, we'll be in 2 Thessalonians for... Uh, maybe six weeks. Uh, it'll take a little while to navigate through some of this. But listen, I want to encourage you guys. Man, there is a, I mean, a stinking gold mine in 2 Thessalonians. And if you remember in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul, along with uh, Silvanus, if you're a King James, uh, Silas is his name, and uh, Timothy all participated in this great work that was established by God literally not allowing them to go where they wanted to go, but God redirected them. They ended up in Thessalonica. Over a period of about three weeks, this young church was established. And I mean, man, that place was off the hook. I mean, it was growing. God was doing dynamic things in this young church. And so to encourage you that you don't have to be in the church for 50 years for God to do powerful things in your life, the Thessalonian church is testament to that. Even to young believers, God is wanting to exercise and flex his might in your life to demonstrate his goodness, right? So we're going to transition into 2 Thessalonians, and instead of me reading uh, these first 12 verses as we have in the past, we will just read it as we navigate through it, and everybody's okay with that, right? All right, we're going to study this scripture this morning, and so let's pray, and as I'm praying for you, you pray for me that, and you guys know this tongue uh, stutters. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of stuff happening with this stuff. And so you pray for me this morning that I can articulate to some degree reasonably to convey what's in my heart and in my mind to you guys. Okay? Now I can, I can go ahead and, 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 and confess to you this morning that I'm, all, I'm filled up. I guess I've got some joy this morning. So uh, I'll try not to let that uh, become an entanglement. Uh, to uh, what I'm wanting to share, but uh, upon seeing some faces this morning, I, I just filled up, and it just, okay, that's it, all right? Okay. So let, let's, let's pray, all right? Father, in Jesus' name, for the sake of my brothers and sisters who have gathered here at 100 Hobson Way on this Sunday morning of, of this year of 2024, I just pray today that you would speak to each person through your word, as we, as we navigate it and unpack it, that we would find a place in our hearts for this to fit. I know that there is that place. May we make room in that place for the appropriate things to reside. I pray, Father, that you would touch these stammering, stuttering lips, this uh, discombobulated thought process that sets in my mind at times, Lord, and this compulsion to, to jump uh, and, and chase off into, on, onto these rabbit trails, Lord. I just pray, Father, that you would help me stay focused for their sake and to honor your word. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. And the sons and daughters of God in his name said, Amen. Amen. Okay, let, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, 
verse 1 and 2 is where we're going to begin. Now, this is going to sound very, very familiar, okay? And it's going to sound like there's some redundance to this. And you might even ask yourself, Trent, why are you reading that again? And why are we covering that again? It sounds so familiar. And this is what it says in the first two verses. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you read and went through the study in 1 Thessalonians, one of the things you'll notice immediately is this opening greeting is almost verbatim for how he opened 1 Thessalonians. He lit, it's almost word for word how he readdresses them again. And I know what you're thinking. Then since you've already covered this trend, let's just slide on to these next verses. But there's something to be said about the fact that he reiterates the very same thing. And the thing that needs to be expressed out of this is the fact that their identity that was once found in God remains in God. Now, this letter was written, some theologians would suggest, within a matter of weeks, a month, up to several months. But regardless of how much time has expired, right, their identity in God remains the same. He addresses them just like he addressed them from the very beginning. And he says to them, to you, the church of the Thessalonians, not in Thessalonica, but of the Thessalonians, in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you say, okay, Trent, so what are you saying by even going through all that? It sounds a little discombobulated already. What I'm saying to you guys and what I'm saying to me is that our identity fixed in God should remain fixed in God. Who we are when we're first converted and first accept Christ, that identity should be so deeply stained within us regardless of how much time passes. Once you're engaged at another point in time, that identity should still be intact. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the question before we move on this morning is who am I and who are you? Because what I have found in my journey of faith is that sometimes within the realm of Christendom, there's a huge mounting identity crisis within the body. Listen to what John says in chapter 3 of 1 John. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That's all of us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You see that? That is what we are. Not shifting, not changing, not being altered, but fixed. That's exactly who we are. Now listen, I'm going to say something here. and Some of you high-end intellects are going to completely abandon me and I completely get it. Because if this were said from some other pulpit, I would probably think, what's going on in this guy's mind? But when I was a young man, is Matthew here? Matthew. Matthew's going to be with me this morning on this one. When I was a young man, a scrapping 11-year-old, 12-year-old, on Saturday mornings, I used to get up every Saturday morning. And it wasn't simply to watch cartoons, because that was the only day cartoons were on, right? To those of you who are of my age, and... I see you out there, young lady. 
I see you out there too, Mike. If you're my age, you remember, it was Saturday morning, you either gathered the cartoons or you just missed out. But it wasn't just the cartoons that excited me on Saturday morning. There was a program that would come on at noon on Saturday mornings. And this program was based out of Memphis, Tennessee. And this program was professional wrestling. Now, some of you guys, as, as a, a Jeff Darty would say it, or Kellen Live would say it, professional wrestling. And in this professional wrestling, there was this particular wrestler who was just awesome. Even though he didn't look awesome, he was just awesome. Because you know, all of that wrestling was real when you were 11 years old. And this particular wrestler's name was Jerry... Shame on every one of you. Jerry the King Lawler. Now, I don't know how many churches this morning is opening up their sermon with Jerry Lawler, but 100 hops away, the Driven Church, we're doing it, right? And in this wrestling uh, where Jerry Lawler was a baby face or he was a good guy, right? And so there was always an opposing heel, you know, the bad guy. And there was this gentleman by the name of Wayne Keown, right? Keown, and he was a uh, uh, heel. He was a bad guy. You don't know him by Wayne Keown. You know him by the name of Dirty Dutch Mantel. That's right. Now, Dirty Dutch Mantel had a hairy face, long... Jeremiah, you kind of looking dirty Dutch this morning. He had a hairy face, a long Texas handlebar mustache. I mean, his thing was long, Jack. Now, this cat was hairy. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say he wasn't hairy, he was furry. I mean, this joker had hair on his back, man. I mean, it looked like, it looked like fur. And I remember uh, watching wrestling. I was completely engaged. I was vested uh, every morning. I wanted to know how the king had done Tuesday night at the gardens or at the Memphis Coliseum. I wanted to know how all of those matches uh, worked out. But I remember they had gotten into this incredible feud, Dirty Dutch and Jerry Lawler. And so the town of Memphis was just entirely too small for both of these titans of wrestling to reside. So they had something known back in the day as a loser-leave-town match. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, okay, I got a couple of brothers that are tracking with me. Anybody else? Okay, I got a sister tracking with me. Okay, all right, we're a loser-leave-town match, meaning what? The loser of the match would have to leave town for a given amount of time. It would be like six months or to a year. And so the match was, was to take place at the Memphis Coliseum. And I was nervous. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So I turned it on the next Saturday morning. I was going to find out who the winner was by who showed up on the show. And all of a sudden, Lance Russell, Dave Brown, you know the show. They go to declare who the winner was. And they declare who the winner was by announcing or introducing the individual coming out to be interviewed, and the individual coming out to be interviewed was Jerry Lawler. So immediately I knew that he had won the loser-leave-town match. And I was celebrating in my living room with pizza rolls and Tostinos. The king had conquered the dirty Dutchman. And now I wouldn't have to deal with the dirty Dutchman for at least six months. So Lawler comes out and he's talking it. You know, he's t he, t he pulled the strap down. He wore him out. He did all these things, this, that, and another. And halfway through the show, Lance Russell says, but today we have a new wrestler here in the Memphis area and we're going to introduce him and his name is Texas Dirt. And out walks Texas Dirt. And it was Dirty Dutchman Tail 
in a mask. Right? And the whole time, I'm watching this, and everything in me is on fire with anger. And I'm like, am I the only one that can see that same furry back? Am I the only one that sees those Texas handlebar mustaches, that long beard, that same, that same uh, uh, walk and stride? Am I the only one? And then the commentators interview him as though they have no idea that this is te Texas dirt is Dutch Mantel, even though he has the same tattoos that Dutch Mantel had. And I'm sitting there completely flabbergasted and frustrated. And then he would lose another loser leave town match, Texas Dirt. And then he'd come back as Zebekiah Coulter or Uncle Zebekiah. And I'm like, how many names does this guy have? How many masks can this guy take off and put on and introduce himself under a completely new identity? And I know that sounds ridiculous, but within Christendom, Based upon the circumstances and the conditions of our life, man, we're interchanging masks left and right. And there's one day we're this and the next day we're that. And if conditions mean that we have to act this way or have to act that way, man, we've got a mask for that. And if we're not embraced by our peers, if we're not celebrated, man, we'll just pull out another mask and we'll put it on and we'll become that person. And that ought not be so. That ought not be so. Our identity should be fixed in Jesus. We don't even have a mask. We are children of God. Unchangeable. Unchangeable. This is who I am. This is who you are. Regardless of the circumstances. And the Apostle Paul writes back to this young church and he addresses them with the same identity that he had addressed them in the very first letter. You know why? Because he knows who they are, whether they know it or not. And we need people in our lives who understand who we really are. And we need people in our lives who come around when that identity is starting to slip through our fingers like iron, like staying through the hourglass, you know what I'm talking about? The whole days of our lives. You can see it, right? When our identity is kind of slipping through that, we need people to come in who love us and encourage us, who close the gap in our fingers and say, no, this is your identity. You do not compromise that. Put your mask down. You see? Put your mask down. You say, Trent, you've been talking for 10 minutes. That's two verses. You're right. Let's move to the next verse, if you will. And this is what Paul says. He says, we, now this is the first person plural, okay? We, he's addressing them. If you go to the end of 2 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul says, I've written this letter with my own hand. I've written this letter with my own hand. Yet... At the beginning of this, he identifies Silas and he identifies Timothy along with himself. And then, moving forward, he uses the term we, right? We, first person plural, representing him, Timothy, and Silas, saying we all have one heart in this. In Jesus, that's the reality, right? We should have one heart. And he says this, listen, we ought Always to thank God for you. The word ought in the Greek is ophilo, which means to owe or to be indebted. 
to owe or to be indebted, and it's in the present indicative, active, which means the present means it's ongoing. The indicative means stating the facts. And the active means the subject is carrying out the action. Who is the subject? We. That being Paul, Silas, and Timothy. What Paul is saying is we are indebted to God, continually giving thanks to him for his work in you. When I see the work of God in your life, I feel this debt to God to say, oh God, I give thanks to you for the work that I see you doing in the lives of other people. And if we can bring ourselves to that place where we celebrate and give thanks and feel an indebtedness to thank God for the work I see, we see him doing in others, then we probably need to open our hearts to a deeper work of God even in us, Greg. When we can't give thanks to God for the work he's doing in others. That's what Paul says right here. And then he says this. He says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. I mean, everybody. And he says, rightfully so. So it's not just this obligation. It's the right thing to do. He said, this is right. And he says, because your faith is growing more and more. He's acknowledging the work of God in their life. He said, man, I see you. I see this faith growing up in you. And then he goes on, he says, pardon me, and the love all you have for one another is increasing. Let me say this. Hey, my brothers and sisters, let me say this. If there's a genuine faith increase growing more and more, then the evidence of that should be a love that's growing more and more. If your faith is increasing in Jesus and your love is decreasing, you may want to measure your faith again and reconsider what's taking place in you. Because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I look out at you, Billy Stinnett, and I love you. My love for you is growing as my faith grows. Ricky, my love for you is ever growing. Doug Baker, when I saw you this morning, you know, you know, my love for you isn't of me, but it's born in him as my faith is ever growing. My love is ever growing. And I look out amongst you, and my love for you is expanding. Why? It isn't because I'm so good. It's because of him and my faith in him. And he produces in me something I can't produce in myself, and that's a love for you. And you understand, I'm hard to love. So if you're loving me more and more, it's because it's a work that's outside of yourself that produces that love. Some of you cats are hard to love. Like I'm hard to love. But how does it happen? Him, right? Him. Him. Don't get offended I say you're hard to love. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. They know. 
like two porcupines. We love each other. The closer we get, the more we stick each other. You know what I'm talking about. Every married woman, married man says, amen to that, Trent. I know. Right? Listen, listen to what he says. They are commended, but God is thanked, right? Okay. He says, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith. Your perseverance and faith. Remember what's happening. Their faith is increasing, right? Growing more and more. And their love is increasing, growing more and more, right? Isn't that what the scripture just said? Isn't that what it said? Your faith is growing more and more, and your love for one another is increasing? Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. You know what Paul's saying? What I see in you is happening under pressure. Now, I wanted so bad to have them play about 30 seconds of that under pressure. But I thought it might just get you going the wrong direction. This is a faith and a love that's growing under pressure. As a matter of fact, when the scripture says their faith is growing more and more, it's the word, the word more or, or growth is oxano. That just means expansion. But do you remember in the Greek what the amplifier or the intensifier is? It's hooper. So when we talk about like hooper parasos, which means feel, when you add the parasos, it means overfill. So the axano, where he's talking about the more, he adds the hooper axano, which means it's increasing beyond measure. That's what he's saying. He, he's literally saying, man, your faith is beyond measure. It's growing exponentially. Now, every carpenter here, that being Doug and that being many of you, have grabbed that measuring tape that you thought was long enough to measure something because you didn't have a 50-footer. It wasn't on hand, so you grab the one out of your car, unbeknownst to you, it's 10 or 12 foot. And you snap that thing on, and you pull it out to measure, and then all of a sudden, before you get to the end of it, you feel that thing yank right out of your hand. Why is that? Why is that? The tape's not long enough to measure what you're measuring. Paul is saying, right here, your faith, Hooperoxano, your faith, I don't have a tape for it. It's beyond measure. And then he says, you're increasing love for one another. Phleadnazo means superabounding love. And you know I'm down with the super thing, right? You guys know, if you've been here long enough, man, super kind of turns me on, right? Right? And so, superabounding love. That's what I want to have. That's what I want you to have. 2024, I want you to have superabounding love. That is the fruit of immeasurable faith. Right? Right? Yeah. Okay. And we're about to close. About 30 minutes. Second Thessalonians. Listen, chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. We're just going to read this. And this is what he says. He says, hold on, let, let me go back. Let me go back to verse 5, okay? I about jumped it. So we're not closing. We got verse 5 to come. Listen, he says, all this, when he says all this is evident, so what is he talking about as evidence? Their faith, right, more and more, and their love increasing. This is the evidence he's referring to. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. 
suffering. When he says, and he's talking about the suffering that's been brought about by their faith in Jesus. He ain't talking about the suffering from silly decisions or the suffering from decisions that were made by silly people. He's talking about the sufferings and hardships that are brought about by your stance and your fortitude in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So I want you to get this. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Well, what is the judgment of God? What is the judgment of God that he's talking about? How is it being proved right? Because none of us would ever subscribe to suffering, right? Anybody, anybody buying suffering? If I'm selling suffering, how many buyers do we have this morning? Bree, you buying suffering? Nobody buys suffering. Billy, you ain't buying suffering this morning, are you, brother? Nobody's buying suffering. But when the scripture says, when the scripture says that this is evidence that God's judgment is right, God is wanting to produce something in them that none of us would subscribe to. And yet, Paul is saying, look at your faith, look at your love. You would have never chosen this. God has allowed this. And for that very reason, under these conditions, your faith being persecuted. And what is being born in you is evidence and validation that God is right when you would have never chosen it. And you know what I'm talking about. When you get on the other side of some heartache and some suffering that's been brought about because you took a stance for your faith, you know what I'm talking about? You get on the other side of it and you're like, man, I didn't think I could go through that. I, didn't, I was asking God, where are you at, God? What, what are you doing, God? And then all of a sudden, we get on the flip side of this, man, and our faith is expounded, our love has increased, all of those things, and we're like, ah, it's evident. God was right. And I was miserably wrong. And you know what? Sometimes it takes months to figure that out. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. And I've seen people at the edge, at the end, man, I'm talking about on, on the back book cover of their life. Say, I, I've just now gotten it. I just now realize it. With the last pages of my life being written, at this place do I realize God's judgment was right. He was right. And this whole time that I resisted and refuted him, the evidence is overwhelming. He was sovereign. And then this is what he says. He said, as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Katexio, counted. That's the Greek. And it means to be weighed on a balanced scale or to have the scales balanced. And what Paul is saying to you and saying to me is that God will add to the scale against your persecution, your heartache, your troubles, when the scale appears to be overwhelmingly powerful and heavy and disproportionate, God said, it's upon me, Bree, 
Billy, Ronnie, I will add to the other side of the scale. My goodness, my mercy. You know what I'm talking about, Amanda? When you suffer hard, God said, I will add to the other side of the scales. This thing will end up balancing out. I will not leave you in an unbalanced scale. And he's referring to an eternal scale that we have to anchor our hope in in an eternal perspective, which we spoke about over the last few weeks. And you say, well, how do you know that, Trent? Well, let's read the next verse. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. Are you troubled? You need some relief. And to us as well, Paul says. You know what he's saying? I'm troubled too. Timothy's troubled too. Silas is troubled too. It doesn't matter how close you get to God. It doesn't mean that that's going to all of a sudden uh, 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 protect you from trouble, persecution, or difficulty, or heartache. He said, the comfort is for us too. When will this happen? Because that's the addition to the scales. You see, he will pay back trouble. He will give comfort. You see the, you see the addition? You see the addition? You see the scales becoming balanced? I will do this, says the Lord. Paul says this, speaking on behalf of God. When will this happen? I want it to happen now, don't you? Those people have done me wrong. I want to watch too. You know, when God repays them. I want to be perched up there on their on the roof of their house, watching as they walk out on the slippery ice in their car. And I want to say, pay them back right there on the ice. And let me get my phone so I can record it. And give me a thousand followers. You know, that's how we are. We want it now, but that's not eternal perspective. Eternal perspective gets us through these temporal afflictions. When will this happen? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. You know what he's telling them, guys? Hang on. We've had a lot of heartache in this young church, in this small church, over the last six, eight, 12 weeks. Now I want to say to everyone who has suffered such devastating heartache, who find themselves weeping themselves to sleep at night, whose heart feels so empty and so shallow and so hollow, I want to say to you, hang on. Hang on. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished, this is what Paul said, with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You know why? They want to be shut out now. They choose to be shut out while living. But upon death, God says, what you have chosen, what you, it's, you can have it. It's yours. On that day, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. You know what Paul says? And that includes you. <laughs> That's what he says to them. You. You. Because you believed our testimony to you. And then 11 and 12, these are the last two verses, chapter 1. And with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling 
And that by his power, dunamis, duname, you know what's my favorite Greek word? By his power, his explosiveness, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and what? Your every deed prompted by faith. So how is this going to happen? How is, how is God going to do such a beautiful thing? How is he going to bring this goodness and this, uh, uh, these deeds prompted by faith? How is he going to bring that to fruition? Through his power. Through your power? No. 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 Not through your power. Through his power. Through his power. Through his dunamis. Will be brought about. That's what it says in the verse 11. By his power, he may bring this to fruition. But how is he going to bring this to fruition in conditions that are so, so torturous? Paul is telling this young church who is suffering persecution and affliction, he is saying to them, God's going to bring this work about under these conditions. Now, you and I, if we're at Thessalonica, we're saying, hey, God, I know you love us. How about making the rough and rocky terrain a little more smooth that we might navigate this so you can do this work in and through us under conditions that are much more palatable? That's what I would say, Right? God, do this great work in me when life's easy. Can you make it easy? But Paul is saying circumstances have nothing to do with this. Not in producing these things. What it has to do with is God's power. Okay. I don't know how many of you guys have ever heard of an Ibex deer. Anybody here? Ibex deer. Okay. Ibex. Anybody Ibex deer? You may have heard referred to Ibex goat. Well, uh, these, these goats are native to, to Israel in that area, that region. And these goats, deer, choose whatever term you'd like to choose. Whenever these are referenced in the Old Testament, they're referenced as a deer. But these, these deer, goats, we'll call them dotes, you know, gears, I don't know. But uh, for the sake of what the scripture refers to them as deers, we'll refer to them as deers. Can I do that without you all sending me a text and a Wikipedia link to correct me? Okay, we'll refer, refer to them as deer. These Ibex deer, man, they, they, uh, they gain their nutrition. They have this insatiable appetite for minerals that are found in rocks and salt sediments. These Ibex deer are absolutely... Absolutely a creative wonder, if you've ever seen them. They will climb the most difficult of conditions to the highest of mountains to garner the minerals and the salts that they need 
for their equilibrium and their immune systems and whatnot. This creation of this Ibex deer, unlike anything I've ever seen, absolutely essentially needs this salt and these minerals that typically are found within rock. Now the incredible thing about it is these Ibex deers do not just simply, simply navigate natural terrain to garner this. They will navigate unnatural terrain terrains to garner the minerals and the sediments that are found in rock. So if there are structures that are built out of rocks, you may find in this region these ibex deers climbing these constructed structures to gain that. Now, listen, I know what you're thinking. Okay, Trent, I've heard of ibex deers. But it doesn't do it justice. So you know what I did? I said, Taylor Evans, I need you to throw me together about a one-minute video of these Ibex steers. And she said, oh, sovereign and sweet dad, all-knowing and all-loving father. She said, yeah, I'll get to it, dad. I'll do it for you, dad. But one of the beautiful things about these Ibex steers, and, and I want to kind of entreat this, and, and present to you, and I want you to take it into your own heart, is that the, 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 the small ibex deers are so in love and trusting of the parental ibex that if the parental ibex climbs a structure that looks absolutely impossible, that baby ibex will climb the structure. You know why? They understand that the nutrition that awaits them at the top or wherever it may be found is worth navigating those conditions, if the parental ibex navigates it and leads them. Hit that, Clark. Larry, throw it up there, brother. Let's check us out. Give me some of that music. That music's sweet to me, Larry. Carrie, would you come on up? Larry, turn that on down. So just turn it down. I want you to read this scripture of Habakkuk. Now, this is actually the prophet Habakkuk is actually quoting the psalmist. And you know what he's saying right here? He said, oh, sovereign Lord, you are my strength. And he says, regarding the Lord, he says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on high places. 
You know what Paul was saying? You know what he was saying to this group of young believers in Thessalonica when he said God's power is going to do this? It's not necessary that God change the terrain of your life. It's not necessary that everything go your way. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that the power of God would grant you the feet like a deer to allow you to navigate these most difficult of circumstances that will enable you to come up under the trials of this life and to reach the high places where nourishment is found for your soul. And Paul was saying to these young believers in Thessalonica, look guys, we need to be praying like Habakkuk. We need to be praying like the psalmist. Give us feet for the terrain that's been established in my life by those who oppose the work of God in me. Give me feet to navigate it. And so through the sufferings of our church family, for Bree and for Billy and for Ronnie and for others, for Brandy Denzig, whose mother passed, for others, many of you, I thought about you, and there's a part of me, Billy, you know, that I pray, I'm like, Lord, uh, would you... For Brandy and would you for Ronnie, would you for Billy, would you for, for Bree, would you for Kathy? Uh, my, my prayer typically is, Lord, just give them some comfort and a season of rest and stillness as they navigate such tragic and painful loss. That's, that's how I typically pray. But I think the prayer that I need to be praying for you is, oh, God, give them the feet of a deer that they can navigate this difficult season of their life and in no place would their footing be compromised. But if there's just a slither of an edge of hope, may their feet the footing thereof be secure on that small slither like an apex deer on the face of a mountain. But see, I can concentrate on them because it's really obvious that the pain they're going through, they're burying their loved ones tragically. But there's some of you too, man. You're going through some stuff, brother. Man, your identity you feels compromised. You've been trying to do it on your own. Yeah, you know, I got enough in me. I can do it. And you're in a stinking free fall, man. Down the side of a cliff of adversity. And this morning... You need God to do a work in your heart, in your spiritual feet, that your footing would be recovered, regained, that you might navigate life's difficult path, right?
So what we're going to do, we're just going to open up the altars. And I'm just going to say to you, my brothers and sisters, if your footing's a little shabby, and you want to fix that, you know, you want God to give you dear feet, spiritually speaking, you can, you can seek the Father in a place like this. You can seek the Father in a place like this. And you can ask him for that, that footing and that resolve to get through, right? I want you to stand with me. And as you stand with me, we're just going to give this to you. This is your moment. This is your moment. Nobody judging, no one measuring. No one doing any of those things. You're footing loose this morning. It's between you and the Lord. Between you and the Lord.